0: You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Good morning, Chris. uh, It is a treat to be here. And uh, some of you don't know me, uh, and that's to be expected. My name's Mark. Uh, I've actually only been on staff here for about three weeks. And uh, after three weeks, they're already handing me the keys to the service. And so uh, you can can buckle up. We're going to have some fun this morning. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Jonah uh, chapter 1. And, uh, and so my name, as I was saying, my name is Mark. I'm the director of Soul Care and small groups here uh, at Yo Harvest York Region. And uh, and it's a privilege really to open God's word with you this morning. It's a pleasure, it's an honor. Uh, and we're gonna be talking about something today that is near and dear to my heart, but by that, by no means does that mean I have arrived or have perfected this. It, it's an, ob- an observation. It's something that I've kind of noticed in kind of North American churches. It's a weakness, I think, of ours. Um, but that's not to say that I am strong and it at all. And it's this whole idea of evangelism. It's this whole idea about sharing our faith and understanding the call that all of us have. It's not set aside for people who are particularly extroverted or who are particularly gifted in sharing their faith. It is something that is common among all of us, that if you follow Christ, you should be about multiplication. If you follow Christ, you should be about seeing the gospel go forward. And, uh, and so while you're turning there, I was thinking uh, a little bit as I was reflecting on the example of Jonah and kind of what to do and what not to do and, and looking at my own life. And, and I was brought back to a time, a pivotal time in my life in grade nine. Some of you are parents of grade nine students, maybe you're in grade nine here in the room. It's an important transition in life. You're moving to more responsibility, you have more freedom, you're in a new school, you're probably in a different youth group, different age group, a whole lot is going on in that early few months of your grade nine year. And I remember on a Tuesday night, my dad was taking me to youth group. And so we pulled up to the church, and again, I'm banking on it being just a regular night. I'm banking on the fact that I, I have some kind of control. I understand what I'm doing. I understand where I'm going. I'm busily trying to work out on my own mind, kind of where I belong, how I fit into this. And so I'm banking on just kind of a consistent night. And yet when I pull up to the church, there's a school bus idling in the parking lot. And uh, so my dad was dropping me off. And this is, if you're a mom, you would do this very differently. When moms drop their kids off and don't understand what is happening, why is there a school bus in front, you go inside. You go inside, You, what's the deal, where are you taking my child, where's the waiver, where do I give you my cell phone number? When dad's driving, it's just get out of the car. It's uh, dad. The car didn't even stop. The door just opened, and out you go, son. And uh, you know, and so I'm like, well, dad, I don't know where I'm going. Like, how am I going to get home? How am I going to get home? I could be attacked by wolves. What am I? You know, what are you? What are you going to do if I need you? And his his response was, Mark, it's a youth group. You'll live. And out you get. And so I got out of the car and I get on the bus. And uh, and I'm sitting uh, against the window in the middle of the bus. None of my friends are there. I have no idea what's happening. And as the bus starts to roll away, uh, the youth leader gets on and says, "Okay, tonight is a faith in action night. Uh, We are heading up the road uh, to the local nursing home in which you have been paired with a resident there, and because we're entering the Christmas season and and we wanna be hospitable, we wanna be charitable, we wanna be kind, we wanna provide community for some of these people who don't have it, you're gonna go, spend a couple hours with them, and then as the Lord leads, share your faith. And in my head, I'm thinking, you've gotta be kidding me. You're sending me to a foreign place with people I don't know and I'm gonna share my faith. My body just started shutting down. I'm starting to sweat behind my knees. Has this ever happened to you? It's the most terrifying experience in the world. My heart rate is elevated. My breathing is all over the place. And I'm thinking, my dad has thrown me out of a vehicle to get on a bus to go talk to someone I don't know to tell them about Jesus. And, uh, and so the bus rolls up and I get the little white card. I'm meeting Miss Eleanor in room 221. And, uh, and so I knock on the door politely and this brilliant, sweet, beautiful little British lady opens the door. British accents fix everything, okay? They are so polite, so sophisticated. And and she's just like, come on in. And I'm just like, this isn't so bad. And and so I go in and she's a spot of tea and some crisps, you know, we're doing the whole British thing. And I'm sitting there and she's taking me through photo albums. She's telling me what her family, she's telling me what it was like growing up during the war and coming to Canada and the passing of her husband. And, And she's sharing all this. And I look at the clock and I'm like, I've got 10 minutes to tell her about Jesus. And, and so I just cut into the conversation. I'm like Eleanor, I need to tell you about Jesus. You want to take the air out of any situation? You lead with that line, okay? I got to tell you about Jesus. And so she just kind of looks at me, kind of cautiously. I'm like, look, here's the deal, Eleanor. We're moving into Christmas, and you know the real reason we celebrate Christmas is with the fact that you and I uh, we're sinners. That's a that's a term that goes over real well the two by the way. You know, we're sinners. We're we're imperfect. And uh, we believe that Jesus was born to a virgin at Christmas time. Born to a virgin. How does that work? And in my head I'm just thinking you've got to be kidding me. I was like, I'm not sure of the biology of how I got here, let alone how God pulled it off with Mary, you know? And uh, so I'm telling him like, well, we'll gloss over that bit. It's not important. And, uh, <laughs> and so I keep going and, you know, and he lived a perfect life. He was fully God, he was fully man, and he was perfect. Well, how can he be two people in one? And I'm like, Eleanor, look, I need you to stop asking me questions. <laughs> you know, your questions are not important right now. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a bit to get through. And uh, you know, so we keep going. And he died on the cross for you. Uh, he died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath so that your sin wouldn't prevent you from spending eternity with him. And, and she was like, well, how do you know he rose again? I'm like, Eleanor. It's in the Bible, all right? It's true, we believe it, you know? And at this point I'm getting flustered and I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking, all right, uh, let's pull the chute on this, you know? And I just kind of look at her and I say, look, I'm sorry I've wasted your time. Down the road is my church. There are far more qualified people to answer your questions. I pray that you will go and they will rectify the mess that I have created here. And, uh, and she just burst out laughing. And I thought, Eleanor, you are sick. I was like, why Why are you laughing at me? And she says to me, in no word of a lie, this is the exact quote, I will carry it, it will be on my tombstone, okay? She said, Mark, I have been a Christian for 75 years, and it's so nice to finally hear someone just talk about Jesus. And I looked at her and I said, I will find you in heaven, and I will burn your mansion down, (laughs) you know? How dare you do that to me? 75 years, Eleanor. You could have taught me what to say, you know. And and so I got. We had this moment. There was this British polite little hug. And and uh, you know, I got in the car. My dad was like, "How was it?" And I was like, "It was great. And it was terrible at the same time." I'm so glad that I'm going to see Eleanor again. I'm glad she's a Christian. But I came under the conviction, and this is how it ties so perfectly to Jonah. I came under the conviction that what is a blatant call on my life? What is a blatant call in your life? What's scripture calls us to, what should seem intuitive, what should seem natural. Uh, If we are passionate about the gospel, this is what should be coming naturally from us. And yet in that moment, it was the last thing I wanted to do. To be open, to be transparent, to be honest, uh, to be authentic with someone who I sincerely thought needed to hear Jesus seemed to be the last thing that I, I wanted to do. And I've noticed this as a trend in North America, that we have somehow moved away from being proactive in our evangelism and we're now very passive and impersonal, if it happens at all. I look at scripture and I look at what Jesus' last words were to his disciples in Matthew 28. He says, go and make disciples. It's not, you know, if you feel like it, it's not if it feels right, it's go. Go and make disciples. And we've somehow kind of soft-served this message to kind of say, you know, well, it's about, it's about building relationships, it's about playing the long game. I'm all about relationships, I'm all about those things, but if it doesn't somehow land with the gospel being spoken, we're missing the boat. We are to go. We have forgotten the words that have come right before the Great Commission which says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You and I don't decide who hears the gospel and who doesn't. It's a question of, are we going to be obedient? I love our pillars here at Harvest. They're so simple, but we have pillars because we don't want to miss the point. They're a constant reminder to us. Our, our pillar says, unafraid witness, and it's founded uh, in this perfect passage that Paul says is in Ephesians 6. Listen, this is verse 19 and 20. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." There's an assumption here Paul makes in which he is asking for the words to say to proclaim the mystery of the gospel because he's assuming that's what he should be doing. Proclaim it boldly as I ought to do, as I should do. You and I have a call on our lives and we're failing in it. If you have your Bibles and you're already there in the book of Jonah, A few things you need to know about Jonah first and foremost the overarching theme of Jonah the main principle it's not the big fish okay it's it's not even Jonah's brokenness and disobedience the point of the story is God's grace being extended beyond the nation of Israel now into neighboring nations the grace of God, the goodness of God is now permeating Israel, and it's now going into neighboring nations, even nations that are blatant enemies to Israel. We look at the man of Jonah. He was a Jewish prophet. Northern tribes of Israel, time of great prosperity, time of great peace. And yet, by all accounts in Scripture, he is the only prophet to blatantly disobey Not mentally say, I'm not gonna do that. He actually physically tried to run away from what God had told him to do. When we look at the nation of Nineveh, massive city. Jonah chapter four verse 11 tells us 120,000 people in it. Massive city by biblical proportions. We're also told that it's an incredibly evil city. Jonah one verse two tells us that it's an evil city. Jonah 4.11 tells us these people are so backwards, they're so turned around, they don't even know their left hand from their right hand. It's a massive city. It's the epicenter of all things religion and culture. They were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. There was idolatry everywhere. There was uh, 39,000 feet is said to be the circumference of the wall surrounding the city, 39,000 feet. It was found in the late 1800s. It's now what we consider Mosul in Iraq. The wall was so thick that it said that three chariots could ride side by side along the top of it. And yet when we look at Scripture, when we look at the, the, the accounts, there's two things we need to consider. Number one is this. It was an incredibly evil city. Jonah tells us that, but elsewhere in scripture, you look at Nahum chapter 3, 1 to 10. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that it was an evil city, it was a bloody city, it was a violent city, it was a city that craved war. Direct enemy to the nation of Israel. In verse 10, we're actually given account of of babies, newborn babies being taken into the streets and murdered. It's a horribly decrepit and corrupt place. Sin runs deep in Nineveh. When we look at Hosea chapter 13 and verse 16, we're actually given accounts uh, of not just wit or children being killed in the street, we're actually told of pregnant women being taken into the street, torn open and their unborn children being killed. It's a horrible, horrible place. And yet when we come to the book of Jonah, here's the contrasting biblical thought as well. While man saw, a place beyond God's reach. God saw it as a great city. God saw it as a place of potential. You look in Jonah, in Jonah chapter one, verse two, Jonah three, verse two, in Jonah chapter three, verse three, and in Jonah chapter four, verse 11, in all accounts, when God references Nineveh, he calls it a great or an exceedingly great city. God saw Nineveh for the potential. He saw it for what he could do there, not the present status quo. And so when we look at Jonah, we can readily understand why he may not want to go. But we've gotta start looking at our cities and we have gotta start developing a heart for our cities that doesn't judge it by what we see, but judges it based on God's potential for it. So I'm gonna ask you to stand. We're gonna read Jonah chapter one, the first few verses. And we're gonna look at it together. Jonah one verse one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid for the fare, went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Father, we thank you. We love you. Uh, God, forgive me uh, and forgive us. Um, for taking for granted the precious news that is the gospel. Uh, Lord, as we look to your word, uh, both for examples, both for instruction, uh, God my prayer would be for us this morning that we would be people of your word, that we would be people who would adhere to its instruction and God would you break our hearts for our city so we do not judge it and we do not look it in terms of its sin but in terms of its potential. Uh, God, would we see revival and changed hearts here in York region and around our world because of the precious news of your son. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So here's the first thing. Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2 give us the call. Okay, give us the call of Jonah. Now, understand, when we look at verse 1, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This was an implicit, a direct, uh, it was an uh, an obvious command. Okay, it wasn't an intuition. It wasn't something that, you know, maybe we should sit back and pray and just kind of feel it out for a little while. We're going to take an indefinite break. No, this was obvious. The word of the Lord came directly to Jonah. He is a minor prophet. He was gifted by God. He was appointed by God to be a carrier of God's message to people. That word came to him and said to him, verse 2 says, arise and go. In other words, get up and go. It's a month's journey to Nineveh. Get rolling. Get up and go. And, And this is the part that frustrates me the most, and I blame my generation largely for it. Uh, When you look through church history, we see there's always been an emphasis on missions. But in the last 20, 30 years, what we've seen a lot of the North American churches do is kind of move away from that, and rather than being involved in the sending and the actual proclaiming of the message, we've started writing checks. We've started sending other people to do it rather than making it a personal commitment of ours. And and I'm tired, and and I see this in my generation. I, I had a friend, played hockey with him, uh, he was in my small group. This is a number of years back. And, uh, and his prayer request one night was, pray for me as I'm sharing my faith with my neighbor. And, and me, having not arrived at all in this area, I still struggle with it greatly, um, took him aside afterwards and kind of said, you know, so walk me through your strategy. How can I pray more specifically for you? You know, is it a book what scripture are you using? How are you sharing your faith with your neighbor? Because I am not good at this. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget it. He said, well, well, truthfully, I haven't said anything to him. And I thought, this is an interesting strategy, but go on, okay? <laughs> you know? And he said, well, what I've been doing is I've been cutting his grass. And, and as I've been cutting his grass, I've been hoping that the opportunity will come, well, he will acknowledge it, he will come out, and if it's appropriate, if it feels right, if, you know, if the Lord is in it, uh, you know, then I'll tell him about you know, my faith, I'll tell him I'm a Christian, and it's out of that same joy and compassion that I'm trying to extend Christ's love to him. And I said, okay, um, so how long have you been cutting his grass? Three years, and I thought to myself, it's time to change the strategy son like it's it's we got to get moving here Okay, and, and hear me on this friendship evangelism is crucial I'm not a fan of people who just jet into people's lives drop a bomb and then get out Okay friendships relationships rapport is so important in the gospel going forward What I cannot stand is people who just indefinitely wait We have a calling get up and Go I love the words of Paul in Romans 10. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How will people know if they don't hear and how will they hear if no one tells them? It's this idea that the logical progression in scripture is that if people are to come to Christ, it's because they have heard the gospel. No one, and I wish this were true, believe me, but no one has come to faith that I'm aware of because someone cut their grass. It's not because we invited them over for dinner and we, we stepped out real boldly and said a prayer before dinner. You know, no one that I'm aware of has found that to be you know, the tipping point. We are to get up and go. Get up and go, even when it's difficult. Jonah, and understandably so, why would anyone want to go to Nineveh? It's dangerous. He's a known enemy, and he's going to go on their home turf and call out against their evilness. Look at verse 2. It says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Understand how difficult a task that is. You're going to go on someone else's turf and say, look, your lifestyle is not meshing with God's. You need to repent. That is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's not at all taking away from the, uh, the danger or even how fearful we can be in evangelism. But a call is a call. We've been given this message. We've been given this gospel. We are ambassadors of Christ. And that's why I love the progression of the New Testament, even church history, because it's constantly steering us back to what the norm is. You look at how Jesus interacted with people. We read in Luke 5, he gives us that beautiful line. It says, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus came for the lost. Jesus came to mingle, to interact with, to to make relationships with those who needed him the most. You look at Paul through the book of Acts, three missionary journeys where the gospel was continually going out, churches being planted. Even in early church history, huge efforts being made uh, for missions to happen, not just abroad, but locally as well. The church was was mobilized to reach people on, on your street. It wasn't purely about writing checks and sending people overseas. It was, who are my neighbors, who are my coworkers? What family needs to hear about the gospel? It was, it was a huge precedent. And here's the problem, and this is what convicts me, this is what keeps me up at night, this is what I struggle with the most, is that every day that goes by where I fail to extend the gospel, when I miss opportunities, and as I relapse into that apathy, that's sin, That's directly going against the the order, the law, the expectation that God has given us. We are ambassadors of God. It is our role as Christians to be about multiplication, about being uh, people who embody and, and vocalize and express the immense love of God. We all have a call on our life. Let's look at Jonah's response, verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You know, Sunday schools, we kind of get this and we don't. Very quickly, we understand that Jonah was going the wrong way. I think most of us understand that. He was going as far west as he could. He's going to Tarshish, modern-day Spain. Okay, but did you catch the second part? He was rising to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's not just going the wrong way. He's actually trying to evade God. So we're told he goes down to Joppa, found a ship that's heading to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You know, And and the book of Jonah is just ripe with examples of how distorted and confused Jonah's heart is. You turn the page, you go with me to Jonah chapter 4, look at verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. What's Jonah angry about? Well, if we look a verse ahead in chapter three, verse 10, we're told that when God said, or saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What we've just witnessed here is an entire city experience revival. 120,000 people have turned from their evil ways and have acknowledged God and repented of their sin. How amazing would that be to see that happen in York Region? How amazing would it be for that to happen in our midst? I would love to see 120,000 people be saved in a day. That keeps me up at night, that gets my blood pumping. That's the heartbeat of what we should be about as Christians. But we're told in chapter 4, verse 1: Jonah's exceedingly angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live hear what Jonah just said. He actually just prayed scripture, Exodus 34, 6. Uh, you know, God is uh, abounding in love. He's slow to anger. You know, he's repeating Exodus 34, 6. He's saying these things to God for the purpose of asking God to kill him because he would rather die than see Nineveh be extended God's grace. You think about that for a second. Think about the dysfunction that's happening there. How horrible is it that any one of us would stop for a moment and think, I would rather die than see someone come to know God. What a horrible thing to say. And yet here's the problem. While you and I may not vocalize it, our inaction brings us to the exact same conclusion. When we fail, to be ambassadors, when we fail to be unafraid in our witness, the conclusion is the same. People are still dying and going to hell. The gospel is not going forward. And we, our inaction, was part of that. Jonah is furious that God's grace would be extended to people, evil people who desperately needed him. And sadly, this is not an uncommon formula in the book of Jonah. We're gonna read a little bit later on the rest of chapter four. Twice more, Jonah asks for God to kill him. When you even look at when he's on the boat, okay? And we know the story of Jonah. Jonah goes down, he gets on the boat. We're told God appoints a wind, a hurricane. It comes upon the boat, and uh, you know, the sailors are freaking out. They're throwing things overboard, wondering how are we gonna do this? Jonah confesses. His response is not, let me repent and go do what I've been asked to do. Nowhere in Scripture are we led to believe that at this point in time, Jonah has any remorse for his disobedience. Rather, what does he suggest? Throw me overboard. I'll still take my chances in a hurricane before I go to Nineveh. And out of God's grace, we see him appoint this big fish. Jonah uh, encounters God in this fish, and still in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of Jonah's dysfunction, God still works in Nineveh. Revival takes place. That is the power of the story of Jonah, that in the midst of brokenness, at the end of the day, God wins. Uh, And that is what's so encouraging and so exciting for me, is that uh, in spite of our brokenness, God can still save people. This is is the heartbeat of the book. It's the heartbeat of Scripture. When we look at Luke chapter 19, you look at Zacchaeus. The logical conclusion of an authentic encounter with Christ is someone will be saved. You see Zacchaeus, he climbs up a tree. Jesus spots him, says, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus spends time, has an authentic encounter with Christ, and he is saved. And then in verse 10, we're left with this perfect little nugget from Jesus that says, I came to save the lost. My purpose in being here is to go to a cross to make God's love and grace accessible to everyone. I came so that the lost would be found. I love that about God. It's not up to us who is saved and who isn't. We are called to be agents of his grace. We're called to go. I love what Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5. It's going to be on the screen because it's a bit of a chunk, but there's a few important things we need to get here. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Hear that? We do not judge people through our own lens. We are to see them as Christ does. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Christian or believer here today, by your own experience, by your own encounter with Christ, uh, as part of that, You have now been given a ministry to extend that to others you cannot save people but you have been given a ministry a calling in which you are to go and be agents of god and bringing the gospel to them you have a ministry verse 19 that is in christ god was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message Of reconciliation so it's not just a ministry it comes with a message comes with the gospel therefore we are ambassadors literally Christ's representatives God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God that passage is huge because it sets the context for how you and I ought to live we are to be ambassadors with a ministry that has a powerful message. We don't view people according to their sin, according to their lives. We are to view them as potential. We are to view them as uh, people that God desperately loves and wants to save. There's a famous uh, magician. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the name Penn Jillette. Uh, he's down in Vegas. He has a live show down there. Um, talented magician. Uh, He's also an outspoken atheist. And what kind of put him on the map a number of years ago was he posted a vlog, uh, a video blog uh, online where he ranted for about three minutes on the hypocrisy that he saw in Christians. And he gives this analogy of a bus bearing down on an individual stuck in a street. Uh, Can't move, can't get out of the way, the bus is coming and you as a bystander are in position to help that person but you choose not to. The spiritual parallel he makes is how can Christians claim to have the good news, claim to have the gospel, claim to have the means of which God can save them, but willingly allow that bus to come through, willingly allow that person to die. The hypocrisy drove him nuts, and it led to this famous line. It's on CNN, you can see it in interviews, he says it everywhere. The line is this, how much do you have to hate someone to know what saves them and yet keep it from them. It's not our job to decide who hears the gospel and who doesn't. We've been given the ministry and the message. We've been given the means to introduce people to God. We don't view them in any other way other than how God sees them, as children of his who are deeply loved and desperately need to know the gospel. You and I are not unlike to Jonah. We may not say the same things, we may not pray the same things, but if we're honest with ourselves, our hearts and His land ultimately are in the same place. That if we're not living on mission, if we're not honoring the call that's been placed on us, we're, we're disobedient. And so what? What do we do with this? You know, where do we go from here? I think number one, the most foundational question I'd ask you this morning is, is, do you have a heart for the city? Do you have a heart when you leave this place, when you look at your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe it's your family, does your heart break for them? Are you up at night anxious at the amount of people around you who if they died today would not be going to spend eternity with Jesus? Does that get at you? Does that gnaw at you? Do you have a heart for the city? What worries me most about this message is not that anyone will disagree with me. It's that we will assent to the idea that, yes, I agree with what he's saying in principle, uh, but I still just, uh, I'm not convinced. I agree with what he's saying, but it's not for me. I do have a heart for this city. I do have a heart for people wanting to see Jesus, but they're gonna meet him some other way. To make it abundantly clear to you today, I'm gonna ask you two questions, and I believe depending how you answer these questions, it will ultimately settle in your life whether or not you have a heart for the lost, if you have a heart for this city. Come back with me, Jonah chapter four. Let's reread the first three verses, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Here's the first question I would ask you this morning. Am I following my convictions or God's call? Jonah had an awful lot of prejudices, presuppositions, convictions, worldviews, opinions about Nineveh. And he allowed those things to cloud his judgment when he was asked to go and call out to Nineveh for their evil has come up before me. You and I do not get to choose who hears the gospel We are to live it, we are to embody it, we are to communicate it to whoever needs it indiscriminately. And yet what worries me most is is that some of us have convictions that dissuade us from our calling. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? bottom line is, is this side of heaven left to our own devices? Our heart is capable of lying to itself. We can believe all sorts of weird and wonky things if we don't hold it up to the light of Scripture and if we aren't held accountable. And so I'm asking you this morning, do you have any wonkiness in your heart that's preventing you from honoring the call that God has placed on your your life? Ephesians 2 8 and 9, Paul tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You and I did not discover the formula for salvation. It was done solely on the work of Christ, as a free gift that we accept. Romans three twenty three says we're all in the same boat. We are all sinners. Yet it was because Christ went to the cross and died appeasing God's wrath that you and I would have opportunity to be called to his side and spend eternity with him. It's a free gift. It's nothing you and I did. You and I have no right to allow our convictions or our opinions or our preferences to get in the way of what God has called us to do. Second question I would ask you is this. Let's read the rest of Jonah chapter four, starting in verse five. Jonah went out to the city, went out of the city, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it and in the shade till he till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I not, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's the end of the narrative we have on Jonah. We don't know What came of his mind if he changed his thinking? We don't know what God continued to do in his life. What we're left with is a man whose convictions got in the way of God's call on his life. And here's the second thing I would ask you. Am I focused on my comfort more than God's compassion? In other words, are the things God has given you gotten in the way of God's compassion going out to others? And I'll be honest with you, this is one I wrestle with. I love being comfortable. I, I love it. There's no better place to be in my broken, twisted thinking than to be comfortable. And yet, it, when we put our comforts, when we put what God has given us ahead of what our responsibility, ahead of what our mandate is to do here, this side of heaven, we disobey. We fail to meet the mark. What comforts are obstructing you from being a mechanism of relaying God's compassion to others? One commentator put it this way, worshiping comfort, Jonah loved a plant while God loved the city. Worshiping comfort, Jonah sought personal pleasure while God sought the hearts of people. Worshiping comfort, Jonah desired Nineveh's judgment while God extended Nineveh grace. What are the things in your life that are preventing you from seeing God's compassion go forward? What are the things that preoccupy your time? They may not even be bad things, but they have elevated themselves to a status that's unhealthy, maybe even idolatrous in your life. It's interesting, throughout that chapter four, you heard that word appointed many times. God appointed the plant, he appointed the worm, he appointed that east wind, he appointed the storm in chapter 1, he appointed the big fish. That word appoint is the word provide or provision. In the Old Testament, we read it as manna. When the Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years, um, starving, you know, wandering around, fearing for their lives, God provided manna. It was a way in which God blessed them so they would be reminded of who he was. The intent was never for the blessing to become bigger than God. Do you have a heart for the city? Does your heart break for the lost? William Temple uh, says this. He says, the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members, not its members how I would love and how I would pray and desperately seek that God would do something special in our midst so that this church would continue to thrive because of the hearts of the people that come here that so desperately want to see the lost be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your love and for your grace. Father, I thank you that in the midst of my brokenness, in the midst of my imperfection. Lord, you still work, you still move, you are still all powerful. God, would you continually break my heart for the lost? Would you continue to provide opportunity, instances, uh, occasions for which I can be an ambassador for you? Uh, Lord, uh, I pray that all of us would have the courage and the resolve take an honest look at their sphere of influence and identify the people who need to know you. Would that be our heartbeat? Would that be what sticks in our mind? Is that Would that be what keeps us up at night, Lord? Help us to love people as you love them. Lord, help us to have a vision for them that isn't limited to what we can observe, but is opened up by the potential that you already have seen in them. God, would we see people as prospective children of yours, not people beyond your reach. Lord, forgive me for when I make those, those decisions, uh, when, I, when I move away from what you have called me to. Lord, you are almighty, you are powerful, you are an amazing God. I thank you so much for that. Would you continue to work in our midst and would you do uh, just an amazing work in our city? Give us a heart for the city, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.